morning, uh, Philippians verse 1 through 6. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. We are convicted, aren't we? <laughs> so Linda, if you make your way. So uh, Linda is going to be giving our message, but I have a special announcement. So as Linda comes up, um, our church at SCD uh, officially want to acknowledge and welcome Linda as uh, not only minister of our church, but one of the pastors of our church. So Pastor Linda Bullis. <laughs> It's a big day for us. So, so um, yeah, so, you know, Linda, as you know, her ministry is not only um, good and deep and, and it's, it's touched so many lives. And so uh, the elders at S City Church want to acknowledge this and, and uh, um, you know, bestow that honor on her. And so uh, thank you, Linda, for serving this way. So, Pastor Linda, would you give us the word? Thank you. <laughs> I have a friend... Um, many years and uh, she lives in Pennsylvania and she was talking about our church and she said to me you know uh, the preacher preaches up here but I'm down here and I thought it was interesting that she said that didn't think anything of it until I heard one of the commentators from ESPN talking about how easily John Madden was able to explain the complexities of football which I know nothing about the commentator said he was raised in the black church in the South, and the people in the church would call out to the pastor and say, preach it plain, pastor. And he said making it plain was one of the gifts that John Madden had. These words weren't lost on me. And I thought and I prayed that in the times that I've been given to speak, that I tried to make things plain and help people connect with what the Lord would want us to know about him through his word. So since this is our first week in Philippians, let's look at the historical content of the letter. Okay, so here we are. The historical place that we look now is in the book of Acts, and we read of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 15. And we read that Paul and Silas journeyed, and they were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the gospel in certain regions. And one night, Paul received a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And believing that this was the Lord and that he was to go there and preach, they set out to do just that. Now, Philippi was the leading city in Macedonia. So that's where these two things are connected. They preached and many people came to Christ. Hearts were opened. The church was established, but there was also a lot of opposition. Paul and Silas, if you remember from the book of Acts, were imprisoned, but then miraculously freed. Entire households 
like families of the Philippian jailer, and Lydia, the merchant uh, of seller of purple fabrics, their whole households were saved. These were really miraculous times. Now, the letter to Philippians was written about 10 years after the church was founded, so we put it in that context. And in our time this morning, I'm going to be looking at the first six verses of Philippians 1, which Robert read. We begin with the greeting. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Look at this verse and we see bondservant. Well, a bondservant is a slave. That's another word for it. And Paul and Timothy identify themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. A slave does only what their master wants. They don't have a say in how things are done. And they don't do what they want. Paul and Timothy identified themselves as bondservants doing only what pleases the Lord. And now look at the order of the people addressed in this. Okay, go back to it. To the saints in Christ Jesus, overseers, deacons. Ha! Huh. Usually in these kind of letters, we go from the most important person to the least important person. And in this, the order is reversed. So the lesser, the people, then overseers and deacons. And he wants the people to take note that their partnership with him in the gospel is important for him and to Timothy from the least of them to the greatest, that everyone is responsible for their successes and helps them attain their ministry to the fullest. And he goes on to write, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking that's a really beautiful way to start a letter. Grace and peace to you. And this blessing is for the entire church, but it's also to every individual in that church too. Grace is favor. He blesses them with God's favor, with God's blessing. And grace that defeats the striving, the anxiety, the contention. And peace, that protective buffer against thoughts and attacks that assail many of us. Perhaps some of you need just to pause for a moment this morning and hear these words spoken to you too. Grace to you. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive that today. Receive that grace and peace. We just finished our sermon series on Ephesians. And Philippians is another letter written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome. And you know, I, I know that this was very unsettling for the people in Philippi. It's very challenging as they try to live out their faith in the light of the gospel, seeing that this is what happened to Paul, and they're thinking, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to be killed? And then, really, what's going to be happening to us? Are we going to be challenged in the same way? And it can be very frightening. 
So in his letter, Paul encourages them to look beyond the present circumstances, which he's doing, to see our faithful Lord. And as he's writing this, he's also working, he's also preaching to himself and encouraging his own soul, knowing that his future is uncertain at this point too. And how is he able to do this? He's able to do this because he sees the person of Jesus Christ. He relies on his presence to lead, to guide, to encourage and correct. He trusts the process of walking with Christ, even though it can have reversals and pain and suffering, but he trusts the process. And he trusts that he's not alone in it, that the Lord is Emmanuel, God with us. And for us too, that as we journey through different seasons in our life, that the Lord is present with us, even in wilderness seasons where it looks like nothing's going to get better. For you and for me in difficult situations, there's power to overcome, stay the course like Paul is doing, there's provision for the journey and our daily needs, and there's also a promise of reward beyond what we could ask or imagine because he is a faithful promise keeper. So he's present with us. He's present in the process. There's power to overcome, provision for the journey, promise of the reward. Verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from this first day until now. So he prays there is joy in every prayer for them. Ah. And he remembers them, and he's thankful as he remembers them. His thoughts go through a continual cleansing and purifying. There's nothing between him and the church at Philippi in the tone of this prayer. He thanks God for them with joy. Now, when we pray for different groups and people, say if we pray for our family or our jobs or maybe our church or ministries that we're involved in, are we thankful with joy? Are we thankful in every remembrance of them? I mean, I got convicted with that. That's for sure. Usually not. And usually there's mixed feelings, some of it painful, some of it negative. There may be some anger, annoyance, resentment, old hurts, all these things, Lord. And Paul, in sincerity, offers the prayer of thanksgiving with joy for them because he's chosen to see them through a lens of completion and perfection, not just through his natural senses and his past experience. He sees them as he sees himself, needing and partaking in the grace that was fully extended to him through Christ. He sees himself as the sinner who was fully forgiven, and he's able to extend the same mercy and forgiveness to other people too. 
You know, to make room for more joy in our life, we can choose not to focus on the hurtful or offensive behaviors of others. We can choose to re release the outcomes of the things we intensely desire to see, both large and small. And we can choose with his enabling power yeah, to see the Lord's faithfulness and provision even in times of loss, disappointment, or even confusion. We become able to say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. We become more able to see beyond what appears to the greater reality of eternity, beyond our natural sight. Paul sees who is for him, and he thanks God for them. You know, we can also choose to focus on gratitude for those who are with us and for us in our life, in, in our life of faith. Joy is built on gratitude. It really is. The culture's natural inclination is towards fault-finding and complaining, especially in this current culture. But we can choose to focus on gratitude. This is something we can choose. We can meditate on it. We can express it audibly to each other in our conversation. We can sing our praises to the Lord. Even in situations where it's not so very common, in business, in our homes, with people we know casually, we can find things to be grateful for and things to praise God about. And as we do this, it becomes ingrained in our souls and it changes us. It transforms us and it keeps the negative things in perspective. It's a leveler for us. And we don't see people through the lens of how they can benefit us or uh, as useful tools to get what we want. We don't leverage relationships any longer. We don't see people as expendable in our little armies. To, for our success. And we remember that Christ is the sacrifice and he's our model. He never sacrificed others for his benefit. He was that sacrifice. Verse 6, And I'm confident to this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus Let's unpack this a little bit, okay. In our Western American culture, we really value the individual. In other cultures, in tribes and sects and families, um, the group leaders kind of set the norms and the culture is set by the group, not necessarily by the individual. But in the USA, we really like those pioneers and entrepreneurs, the ones that chart their own path and do what they do to achieve their own goals. And the self-made man or woman pushing through challenges is, is the one to be admired and emulated. And yet the scripture pulls us in a different direction and gives us a different model. It's a model of trust and vulnerability in a God who loves us. 
Salvation, the entryway to the Christian life, becomes this way. We don't make salvation. We don't appropriate it ourselves. We don't, um, this is not something that we do. We are invited into God's story. And we confess that even after we're saved, that we don't achieve righteousness or continuing righteousness in your own efforts. I lay down my self-improvement plan, and I've had a lot of self-improvement plans, by faith, with humility, and day after day give up management of my life on my own terms. And giving the Lord that management of my life I trust him with the outcome. In this exchange, I am proclaiming by my actions, not just by my words, that I, he's good, he loves me, he can be trusted beyond anything that I can understand at this moment. And this is really very reassuring to me and should be for us as well. Let's look at the phrase, he who began a good work in you. God was the initiator of that relationship that we have with him. He called us. He drew us to himself. You know, it's very easy to twist it in our minds to believe that the initiation came from us. Like we heard the gospel. It seemed good to us. And we got baptized. Other people, it doesn't seem so good, so they don't. But Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. Paul says, God is the initiator of the good work started in us. He chose us. He wanted us. And he revealed his love to us. And as we see the magnitude of what he's done for us, we're drawn to him. The good work is to make himself and his love known to us in ever-deepening ways. John 6.29 in the Amplified says, This is the work of God, that you believe, adhere to, trust in, rely on, and have faith in the one whom he has sent. Todd Hunter in his book, Peace with God, describes this as a childlike but passionate yearning to be with God, to do what he's doing on his terms and in his way. And God doesn't start things and lose interest in them and abandon them like we do. That's us. We start things, we lose interest, we walk away. God does not do that. He's faithful when we're faithless and inconsistent. And the whole of scripture shows us a God who's longing for this relationship with his people and the price that he pays in story after story to restore that relationship. He's committed to the long game. He's patient with our failure and always inviting us to come back to him. His mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. God is not bored with his choice of you. He does not regret choosing you. And some of you that are feeling kind of bad about yourselves right now, maybe need to hear this this morning again too. He's not bored with his choice. He doesn't regret choosing you. 
He's not sorry. He loves you. If you have any doubts about this, look at the stories in the Bible of all the flawed people that God is using in his story. Jonah, Elijah, Samson, uh, Marie Ellen, Peter, that she used in her prayer, Aaron with the golden calf, Jacob. They all had seasons of faithlessness and even big failure, but the Lord loved them and continued to draw them to himself and redeem their stories. He wrote and rewrote their stories, and he wants to write and rewrite ours too. After committing my life to Christ, it'll be, wow, coming up on 48 years this year. I can see how many times and in how many ways he's drawn me to himself and rewritten my story. My story was going in one direction, and he rewrote it. And it's a story of continual rescue and redemption. And through much of my life, I believe that after I came to Christ, um, it was up to me to achieve a standard of behavior that I was taught to do and to do good works. As I determined to do this, God, of course, would help me. And I got this wrong thinking that the Christian life is me maintaining my relationship with God by avoiding sin and doing a lot of good things. Many others believe this too. And this results in a quasi-joy when you make good choices and do a lot of good things, but it also leads us and me to judge other people who may not be walking in this way and thinking that, um, well, they don't exactly measure up and, you know, they don't have much of a commitment. And, and we get prideful in how our righteousness stacks up against other people. And this was the era of the Pharisees. And God doesn't want us to live a life of doing this and living like this. Another path of error we could think is that um, the directives of the Bible are the standards that I strive towards but can't consistently keep, and faith becomes more of a behavior modification thing. And I knew many times I didn't live up to the standards in the Bible, and if they were isolated sins, I would confess them to the Lord and receive forgiveness and feel better. But then I started to realize that there were deeper areas of my life, entrenched areas of things that were not pleasing to the Lord, angers and pride and jealousy. And I would confess these things too, but they didn't go away so fast. And I drifted from loving Jesus to making everything about me and my behavior. And for me and many others who have done this, this gets very tiring after a while. And the truth be known, your hearts get cold and distant. And the enthusiasm and the joy that you once felt in your relationship with the Lord wanes. You stop trying because you think you can't do it. And you put up a good show. You know all the good things to say. You know the right things. You know how you can hide. But we never want to drift there and stay in this mostly defeated place where we feel guilty and hopeless to change. 
Our relationship with the Lord isn't about a report card or a resume or for some of us older people like me, a great eulogy or, res- or legacy. No, it's not about those things. So you younger people report cards, but for me, maybe legacy. Who knows? It's not about proving or competing. It's about spending time in his presence. After doing this and committing myself to this path, I began to know and believe deeply that I was known and I was loved. And God didn't, wasn't for me that teacher grading my paper ambivalently going, eh, C minus, you know. He was the God who was with me and for me. He wanted me to enjoy my life and stop evaluating every little thing that I did. He wanted freedom for me and wanted to lead me to see more of his heart. In his presence, I know that over time, I'm being transformed despite delays, periods of despair and depression, and even my dullness to uh, understand. Um, A dear friend of mine recently um, tried to illustrate some of this. And he said, you know, in the story of Jesus with the loaves and the fishes, um, the power to multiply those loaves and fish came from the Lord. All he asks of the disciples and all he's asking of us is to bring us our baskets. Bring those baskets. And for me, my basket is my life. I bring my life to him. Ask him to work through us. And this season, I'm committing to bringing him my basket. And what is this work of the Lord? Who, he who began this good work. What is this work? It's easy for us to think it's a bunch of things that we do. But John 6.29 says that the work of God is that you believe in him whom he sent. So he who began the good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And what is this perfecting? Perfect? Ah, I can't do perfect. Oh, no. It means bringing to completion. And the whole work will be done when we stand before him, when we go to glory. But in the meantime, he's purifying us, challenging us, and adjusting our motives. In Romans 5, um, verses 3 through 5, um, they have this whole sequence of how this happens, this adding of one thing to another. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. See how everything's building? Hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And there is a hope that goes beyond what we're experiencing now. Our job is to keep our eyes on Jesus. And how do we cooperate with this process. It's not us doing it, but we cooperate. Okay, how do we cooperate with this bringing to completion? We can choose to meditatively study the Bible. 
This isn't just uh, Bible reading for the day. I got five minutes, zoom right through, check. Nope, that's the building the resume thing again. And not just reading it, but asking God for a revelation of, of himself in the text. What is your heart saying to me? By a time in prayer, asking more of his presence and his love. By accountability with others in prayer. In silence and in solitude, to hear more of what the Lord is saying. And you know what? In our overscheduled lives, this is a big challenge. And it takes intention. It really takes intention. You know, if you're in, distracted at home, go to a park, go to the beach, um, go to an empty church. Um, in my neighborhood, I'm like three blocks from a Catholic church, which is open during the day. So if I find my, you know, the tyranny of my phone and the tyranny of all this stuff at home, I can just go into the church and stay there or spend the day or a weekend at a silent retreat. That is a big challenge for us not to be talking for 24 hours. Ah, I know. I tried it once. Oh, it was harder than I thought. Ah, and how does this completion or perfection happen? This is God's part. It happens when we look to Jesus and Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's Hebrews 12, too. He's the perfecter. It happens as we present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. That's Romans 12.1. We do this over and over again. That's not a one-and-done thing. It happens as we let the steadfastness of God have its full effect that we would become perfect and complete. That's James 1.4. So we let his steadfastness have its full effect. And Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, having been perfected. Here we go. He became the author of eternal salvation. So sometimes it's through the trials that we go through in the suffering. And 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you've suffered a while, while the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ will perfect you, here we go, that word again, complete, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As we trust him in our suffering, he perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes us. And our final verse on that is 2 Corinthians 12, 9, a familiar verse. God's power is perfected in weakness. So as we rely on the Lord's strength and not our own, he completes the work that he started in us. It happens when we um, cultivate patience in the journey through waiting. Nobody likes to wait. I don't like to wait either. But waiting can be an act of ruthless trust in the Lord and putting aside, intentionally rushing ahead and trying to make things happen. You know, the enemy's always whispering and shouting, hurry up, you're running out of time. You know, like that song from Hamilton, some of you might know about it, uh, that asks the question, why do you act like you're running out of time? And the truth is, 
God whispers to me sometimes, why do you act that way too? Why are you race, racing all over the place like you're running out of time? And he's whispering to me, trust me, wait for me, obey what I tell you and go at my pace. And while you're waiting, try investing in somebody else's dreams. I know that's really hard. When you're waiting for your dream and you think it'll never come, investing in somebody else's dreams is very counterintuitive, but God sees that as an act of trust. And part of our wilderness is waiting in these times in our journeys. It's when the wilderness is when you're waiting for your dream and things don't seem closer with each passing year. It seems further away. And my temptation, and probably yours too, is to try to push it, force it, and if you've known from some of my other messages, figure out a strategy. Remember, I'm the girl that takes the hinges off the door when it doesn't open. So the Lord says, no, don't do that. Stop it. Wait for me. Wait for me. The Lord says, in these times of wilderness, pray, ask, and knock, and wait. Don't be afraid of a no or a readjustment. Don't jump to the conclusion, and I've been here too, that you say, well, I didn't get this because I'm not enough. Or you're disqualified and you're the last to know. Don't buy that. That's a lie from the enemy. The Lord would tell you, fast for breakthrough and clarity. The Christian life is not a course you take for credit or a sport you train for and compete in. It's a relationship between the God who made you loves you, and he wants to heal all your broken places. He wants to demonstrate his power for you and through you. As he heals and empowers you, he sends you out to bring others to himself too with your story because you know what his power can do after you've experienced it. So the invitation this morning is, Who's writing your story? You? Maybe. Maybe some you and some God. A little bit there. Are other people writing your story? Your parents? Maybe. Your boss? Mostly God. I don't know. It's something that we all have to examine our hearts. And sometimes over time, in the Christian life, we take back control of our life and we kind of move the Lord to an assistant role. We manage, we direct, he assists. And this morning, I'd like to encourage us to identify areas where we need a fuller, more intentional surrender to the Lord and ask him for grace to do it. And for some of us, where there have been areas of mistrust or disappointments, Let's lay those areas down. Let's see what the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith will lavishly give to us. And Lord, as we surrender to you once more, we're confident that you write and rewrite our stories to the praise of your glorious name. And Lord, that he who began this good work in us will perfect it and bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So now I invite us to just pray, and Lord, would you identify these areas in us that need to be brought 
to your throne, to your cross. Lord, identify those things in us. Lord, we lay them down. Where we've managed our life on our own terms, we lay that down and say, Lord, you write our story. We've done a crummy job of this. We invite you to take over writing our stories. Lord, help us to stop striving and peddling as fast as we can for your approval and know that we have it and that you love us and you want to restore us. Lord, we do all this to the praise of your glorious name that you would present us as a bride spotless before your glorious throne. And we thank you and praise you. Amen. <laughs>